But if somebody doing is, is actually a bad actor or going after their family or they have people that are trolling them in a way that they're calling them pedophiles and things like that, I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, Green, you call me, we'll go after them. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Denver Riggleman, is a former congressman who became a technical advisor to the January 6th committee and wrote a best-selling book called The Breach about it. He's also built and sold a company, owns a distillery with his wife, and is currently building another enterprise called Riggleman Information Intelligence Group. He has a new podcast called The Mighty Peculiar, which is about past conspiracy theories. And you'll find him commentating on television a lot lately. I really enjoyed talking to Denver about all this and about the choices that he and other Republican members of Congress made and make to navigate politics in the era of Trump and Trumpism. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Denver Riggleman. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Denver, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, sure. Name's Denver Riggleman, a former congressman for Virginia's 5th District, a former senior technical advisor to the January 6th committee. I am the best-selling author of The Breach. But really, before that, before becoming a congressman, that was just my cover. I have about 20 years of military intelligence, but also National Security Agency, Office of Secretary of Defense, and Joint Intelligence Operations deployed multiple times as a military member. I'm married, have three daughters. I own Silverback Distillery with my wife, so our family also makes whiskey. I don't know um, how much more. It's just been incredible. I've had multiple companies in the tech development space, but really about analysis and tracking terrorists, not only for kinetic attack, but non-kinetic. So if you're combining electronic warfare, computer type of attack modalities, things like that, I've been doing that now for over two decades. So it's been been quite the journey for me. Yeah, it's a pretty diverse portfolio of activities. And I, I think that generally says something about an adaptable mind, someone who can deal with chaos maybe or deal with uncertainty. Is, is that true? And what would be the source of that for you? Well, I think it's how I was raised. You know, I was the oldest of eight. I was raised in a very religious household and very, very structured in some ways, but I was Gen X. So it was structured on Sundays. Uh, and I went to church every morning at 5 a.m. at high school for seminary, but on other things, completely free. So in breaking free of that and coming from a place where nothing was paid for, you know, after 18, you know, it was up to me to do what I needed to do in life. I think it's, you know, adapt or die. And uh, I think a part of that has to do too with, 
I was a voracious reader. I uh, learned to read at a pretty young age. I uh, even started writing my first type of books at seven or eight years old. So I always, I think, had a pretty robust imagination. But on the other side, I think I was taught reality pretty quickly, not just uh, enlisting in the Air Force, but becoming an officer. I was actually a Mustang. So I started to separate from some fantasy belief systems, some cult-like behavior. Simultaneously, it was in an education system. I was really trying to further myself because I was such a freaking loser. When I got married at 19 years old to my wife, you know, we lived in my dad's basement. Since I was a self-identified loser, I figured I had to prove myself. I didn't enlist in the Air Force. I was 22. Uh, my wife, at that point, we uh, were pregnant with our third child. We had lost our first two kids in the womb. And so we had a third on the way. You know, we had a heartbeat and things like that. So my, my wife was like, hey, you got to make a decision. Either I work and you take care of the kids or you work and I take care of the kids. And I'm like, I'll, three days later, I'm listening to the United States Air Force. So that's what happened there. So I think that adaptability comes from a survival mentality. It also comes from the fact, I don't think anybody owes me anything. And plus, I'm just naturally curious. And I hate bullies. I hate bad guys. You said something pretty interesting about my diverse background. Before I was in Congress, somebody said, Denver, your whole life has pretty much been hunting terrorists and making whiskey. So it was pretty funny you know, to hear that. But there's a lot that goes into that. There is. I grew up in a non-religious household. I'm Jewish, but not believers. And I think it gave me a freedom to not be burdened by... By mythology, I guess, is the way I think about it. How did you disengage? Was there a moment or was it, did it come gradually over time? So my dad left when I was really early. So my mom met another individual and she got married to him when I was five. And they converted, I think a couple of years later, I got baptized at eight in the Mormon religion. Listen, I was wild anyway. You know, even going to church, things like that, and going to seminary in the mornings, I'd ask some pretty tough questions like, you know, even though it was the 1830s, should we really have 14-year-old wives? Should that be something in your 40s but or 30s or whatever? So I was always, always like, you know, Denver, you're so spiritual, you're so religious, but, you know, you really do ask tough questions. And I think anything you read outside of what you're supposed to read is really apostasy. You become an apostate. And I sort of bought into that, you know, even up to my early teenage years, I'm like, man, maybe, you know, as the one true church, there's going to always be these attacks but I, again, I read everything, and I guess I had an IQ just above moron. Sounds like well above moron from what well, I Well, I just – so I, I'm like, you know, this just doesn't make a lot of sense. Even when I got kicked out of the missionary training center when I was 19, even when I got married in the temple at 24, you know, my wife and I were just like, this is really – some of this is whack. And I think it was actually when I went to, to the Washington, D.C. temple to get married and went through the rites there at the temple – I think it's that time when it just really clicked to me, like, this is not something that I want to do with my life. This feels very cult-like, and it feels very unequal, uneven, based on the sexes, and just feels, I had such an awful feeling coming out of there where everybody says, you should feel enlightened. I just wanted to run into the woods and get away from it as fast as I could. And I think a lot of that had to do with my mind was expanding. There's a lot of smart people in the LDS church. Listen, I, it's not even a thing. There's beautiful people in the LDS church. But for me, being beholden to this bizarre prophet on earth and the fact that you don't actually lead your own life, I have a real issue with a supernatural deity controlling anything I'm freaking doing. So there you go. Yeah. 19 into the Air Force, is it's a daunting thing to sort of give up so much control of your freedom 
to the government, to the military, right? I would never have done that except maybe in a terrible war. But tell me a little bit about just the beginning. How did you respond to that? That must have been like plunging into cold water in some ways. Yeah, I was 20. So it took me three years. We got married at 19 because honestly, I needed a place to live. And her dad didn't want me to live with her until we got married. So once I got kicked out of the missionary training center, I need to get married pretty quick, brother. I needed a place to live and a basement looked great to me at that time. So, <laughs> but after three years of being a power lifter, I played a little college football and eating at Golden Corral every day. I figured that by 22 years old, as I said, when she got you know pregnant, I needed to do something. I was already kicking and screaming. I, I freaking hated it. The basic training I hated, but you know, it's weird. I got number one out of my class. And if you could have been with me at that time, probably had more interactions with the training instructors than most in a negative way. Yet, I don't know how I got number one out of my class. Number one out of how many people? 42, 43. And is that number one based on like physical things, intellectual things? Academic, physical, discipline, demerits, um, orderly. I made a really good bet, I guess. (laughs) What do you think was the central thing that enabled you to place that high? I was a leader. Yeah. That was it. I, I, people listen to me and they, it's just really interesting. So when I got out of there, went to tech school and I lost, I think I got second at tech school by 0.001 in all of our technical class, which was hundreds. By that point, I was headed to McGuire Air Force Base to work on C-141 Starlifters and I hated it. I hated to be a maintainer, but I was really good at it. I'm not mechanical, man. I had to memorize all the technical orders, and but I was really good at memorization. I was really good at lessons learned. And But on the other hand, man, please, I would never be an auto mechanic. Those guys are geniuses. I'd be like, you know, a monkey humping a football, you know, try to get around that. So it was cold water and I really bucked. I almost left after the first two weeks. I'm like, I, I said, F this, man. I don't want to listen to these bunch of freaking knuckle draggers. What the hell am I doing here? I'm smarter than I needed to become a man by, by I think, humbling myself, learning discipline I really believe if I never went in the military, that would have opened my mind to be more of a free thinker. I think it was the other way around when I went in the military. When you look back on it, that was a bunch of years in the military. What do you think are the main things that you took from it? Number one is teamwork and the person on your left and right and how important they are. You start to move away, even though, of course, you take the oath of the Constitution, you love your country, you love your flag, you stand at attention, you salute, you do what you need to do. I don't know what people realize, and I think a lot of people will nod their head within the military structure, depending on your job. Like in the Air Force, it's the AFSC, your Air Force Specialty Code. There's a lot of freedom. Once I became an officer, you know, even enlisted, you have a lot of freedom to make decisions that people don't understand that you are the professional decision maker for that specific task. And you get to do that. And I know a lot of people might say, well, that's not true in my respects. But for me, once I went to UVA, you know, I was Air Force enlisted. They sent me to the University of Virginia. Then when I was commissioned and I was fortunate, I got distinguished graduate also out of my ROTC class. Once I became an Air Force intelligence officer, what it taught me was the ability to make decisions in real time with almost a fearlessness. And I became that guy. When I got as a captain of the Air Force, I had done 11 years total from the day I enlisted. It's 2003. I actually went into NSA special projects at that time, National Security Agency. But what I learned was I had no limit to what I could do if I put my mind to it. And that I had been in such dynamic. I mean, you talk about 9-11. I remember when we deployed, I get to Diego Garcia and they sent all the cots, but none of the tents. 
So I had to learn how to steal tents in order to get my guys. So I stole tents from general officers. I actually changed the manifest so it looked like that was their tents. So that was my first real lesson in real dynamic leadership was stealing general officers' tents so our guys could sleep in them. So I was pretty excited about that. <laughs> so it's just that you set your mind to things, you do it, you freaking, you accomplish the task, you accomplish the mission, and you try to do it with integrity. But you also, you learn how to make tough decisions and you learn dynamic skills, you know, in a very, I would say, chaotic environment. If you were feeling no limits, why did you decide to leave the Air Force? Three kids, 11 years of back and forth. Plus, they said that eventually we found out I had a congenital dis uh, condition in my lungs 15 years, 20 years later. But they said I had only 83% lung capacity. So I had a fight with medical. Here I was, a fast mover, a Mustang. I remember, I mean, buddy, I had the best evaluation. Like, I'm like, I'm going to be a general in the United States Air Force as an intelligence officer. But the fight with the medical establishment, the war that I went with them, the fact that Everybody wanted me to stay in, but once you get into the medical pipeline, and a lot of people in the military know this, it gets very difficult to get out. And I ignored it. I kept passing my physical tests and things like that. But after eight months, they're like, you got to make a decision. Either you write a desk for the rest of your career or you get out. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'm a monster, right? I'm a powerlifting champion. I can run two miles in great time. I mean, what are you talking about? You know? And they're like, well, you're 83% lung capacity. You, you can't deploy and that was a disaster for me. I mean, it was a devastating blow because I loved intelligence work. But National Security Agency picked me up. Probably the best thing to ever happen to me. I was able to spend time with my kids, my wife. I wasn't deployed all the time. And I was able to sort of fix myself, I think, um, as I got out of the military. At some point, you start a company. When is that and what was it? Yeah, between 2003 and 2007, I did some incredible things with the National Security Agency, Office Secretary of Defense, Air Force Special Projects. By 2007, I thought I could start my own company. So at 37 years old, man, started my own company supporting the National Security Agency, Air Force Special Projects, Department of Treasury, actually OFAC, follow the money. So I had an amazing five-year run. But actually, I started the company in 2007, sort of not half-assed, but we were doing it. But I didn't get my first contract to February of 2009, and I sold in April 2012. So it was a whirlwind. I found out I was okay as a CEO too, you know, at that time. What do you think you learned from running that first business about entrepreneurship, about leadership? It's a different thing than than the kind of leadership in the military, I think. Very different. Yeah. I, first of all, I learned that <laughs> you're going to love this. I love founding a company. I hate running it. I'm, I'm with you there, actually. I despised some of the phone calls on, you know, burn rates, load rates, our EBITDA, pro formas, that kind of stuff. I would rather stick a pencil in my eye, into my frontal lobe than do that. But, you know, it's part of the job. But I also learned during that time, and what I loved about it was that I was able to create. And so I've, I've always had that my limitation really, and I, you know, I have new company now and we have Silverback Distillery and stuff is I love the first three to four years of a company. After that, I'm bored. I need either somebody to take over so I can go create something else like, I honestly get to the point of, I don't care if I'm worth a billion dollars, I'm not doing this another second. I can't, right? And I, I think that's what I what I learned about myself, uh, you know, going forward with that. How many people did you get up to by the time you sold that first one? I had about 25 full-time, but we were managing 50 or 60 subs, you know, at the time. So, you know, it was pretty cool. Did you sell it for enough for it to be real impactful? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, I did. Okay. I was able to start Silverback Distillery. We have, I'm talking to you now. I'm looking at, I, I live on, I got about 3000 feet of river out here. I got 50 acres. When I sold it, my wife and I went to Scotland. I was 42. This is 2012. I said, listen, you've been following me since we were 16 years old. It's my turn to follow you. And I said, what do you want to do? She goes, I want to make liquor for a living. So I built her a distillery and I did that with, you know, some of the proceeds from the sale of the company. So at what point do you decide the thing to do next is to run for Congress? Did you run for something else first? Did you run yeah, for governor right, first? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I went from barely voting to running for governor. Right. <laughs> what a, people are like, what the hell? Who are you? You know, but it was rage. It was the hatred of bullies. That's simple. I mean, and people are like, well, what's, you know, did you feel a call to serve? No, I felt a call to kick ass. Like I was pissed. You didn't win that primary. You you went up against a party chair, right? Well, I mean, people <laughs> love me. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I didn't have a lot of money, but I think I was second in polling. I only did it for 10 weeks, man. I'm like, I hate politics. I think it was March of 2017 when I'm like right around my birthday when I got out. And there's a couple of things to my family too. Had nothing to do with our family having like familial problem, but health problem with one of my children. And also fundraising, both of those combined with my absolute distaste for talking to any tribal Republican, even then when I was running as a Republican. And my wife will tell you, I was like, who the hell would do this? I would rather set myself on fire than do this shit. It's awful. So that was just 10 weeks. and That was it. I was out. Like people still wanted my opinion and stuff, but I thought there would never be another political run again until I got a phone call that my predecessor here in Virginia's fifth district had decided to resign because of alcoholism which is a little ironic since I own a distillery. But so a lot of individuals came and begged me to run. And I said, I can't win. Like it's impossible for me to win. They said, well, give it a shot. And then I accidentally won. Tell me about that campaign. Oh, shit show. It's hard to explain. It's so technically ridiculous. But since the candidate before me left after the nomination process, they had to have a committee member vote to pick the nominee, which was only 37 people. I won by one vote. Virginia is so messed up politically. It's just such a mafia, corrupt state, right? But I, I won by one vote. And they're like, oh, it's going to be a blue wave. He's going to get rolled over. So I'm a Republican. So the first thing I do is I'm like, okay, August of 2017 was the Unite the Right in Charlottesville. I said, I need to be the first Republican to write an op-ed against white supremacy and, and Nazis. So I did. That happened the next day, my opponent released that I was into Bigfoot erotica, which is ridiculous because my first book is actually about disinformation. It's called Bigfoot. It's complicated. It's not from the believer of a of Bigfoot, right? No, it's from who <laughs> I was studying the believers of Bigfoot and their bizarre belief patterns. And what I was trying to do was to create avatar, something gentle about how belief systems can overwhelm your life. And I found even the Bigfoot believers don't like each other because they believe in a different Bigfoot God. And since I had been, you know, so involved um, in fighting Islamic extremism, the way I've been raised in a Christian fundamental type of way too, I, I just have a better, I, I was raised that way. And I know fantasy beliefs, fantastical beliefs, how they can overtake your life. So when I wrote that, I was writing that book and on my birthday, some of my military friends, it's just such a simple story, decided to send me pictures I don't draw pictures of myself as Bigfoot. I mean, that would be ridiculous, right? But my military buddies would. So I just put them on my Instagram for my birthday and said, maybe I should call my book The Mating Habits of Bigfoot and Why Women Want Them is a joke. And I remember when that came out, I'm like, it's obviously a joke, but that doesn't matter in politics. Lying and unethical behavior is the way to, to win, to paint somebody. And, 
And I was able to fight that disinformation, though, and I think it's because of my background. Instead of like like not talking about it or saying, oh, that's ridiculous, my God, I joked about it. My first New York Times, I did 40 interviews, I think, in three days. My first interview, because I went viral worldwide, you know, they hit me on Saturday Night Live, everything, because I was actually running against Olivia Wilde's mom, just a distasteful human being. <laughs> what happened was that uh, uh, my first interview, I'm like, hey, you know, I don't really want to talk about it because I don't want to alienate Bigfoot voters. I think at that point, they knew that this was such bullshit. It's so dumb. But again, th- millions of people believed it. And to go viral worldwide really showed me, again, that disinformation is so powerful. And we got to fight it every day. So if you had to give very brief advice to someone who had a claim like that made against them in a campaign, what would you say? Is it just like more good information beats bad information? What's the answer? Some candidates say just ignore it. We're in a new information warfare, information operation battle space. There's tens of millions of people that are dumb as rocks. I mean, you know, if you look at the standard deviation for intelligence, but you have to approach it in multiple ways. You have to pick the right media outlet because there's so many that are untrustworthy. I mean, I'll be honest with you, what Vox did, Huffington Post, things like that, for me as a Republican when that happened was absolutely egregious. It was just non-factual, breathless, clickbait headlines, which the far right is, I think, better at, to be honest. It gave me a really bad taste in my mouth at that point for sort of the, the left political establishment. The issue that I had at that time was that on the right, I was already being attacked because I was also for marriage equality. It's hard to be attacked by both sides to be a pedophile because I was a proponent of gay marriage and to be lied about on the left because it's funny to go viral and then my family to get threats from the left and the right simultaneously for some time was really interesting to me, but I'm a tough bastard. And I'm also pretty funny. And I and the other thing too is that I know how to deal with it. And I and what I would tell a candidate right now is you got to approach it with if it's something so egregious, it's humor and facts in a way that's non-threatening. I think that's the best way to approach it, but you got to pick the right media outlets because so many of them are so clickbaity that even when you have a good interview, they will manipulate the headline in order to get clicks got to be very careful about how you present yourself and your messaging. You got to have a hell of a team to help you with this proper media context, but you cannot shrink from your duty of telling the truth, even if it's painful. So you win the race, you get to become a U.S. congressman, perhaps against some odds, and you get to go to orientation, essentially. And it's a fairly august thing to show up at the U.S. Capitol for stuff like that, right? Yeah, unbelievable. Tell me a little bit about that experience of being a newly elected member of Congress and talking to other members. And what what did you learn from that? I was overwhelmed. I had really served my country in a way, in an anonymous way. I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, people knew me. A lot of people knew me. We had distilleries. I had an incredible life up until being a congressman. I would say the first day of orientation, my wife and I like, this is really cool. By the second day, I'm like, I'm good. I think I want to go home. (laughs) My wife, if you ever interviewed her, I'm telling you right now, she would say, she'd go, Den, when we got to Congress, even the first day when I was sworn in and they had a three to four hour delay because they couldn't get their shit together on the floor. I'm like, what is this place? And I'm meeting more and more people. I'm like, how did they get elected? Like, am I in the right place? I mean, I knew that after six minutes, not after six weeks. 
even that first day, I said, I don't know if I fit in. I mean, I fit in every, there's nothing that I haven't done where I, I didn't think I was okay at it. I've never, I'm never going to dunk a basketball, you know what I mean? But I'm okay at things, so, you know, pretty good athlete, pretty good in school. I'm no genius, but I'm not dumb. So, I, you know, I've done all right. But Congress was so bizarre to me because I said I would join the Freedom Caucus. That's how I won by one vote. But then I win during a blue wave as a Republican. I win pretty handily. And I'm like, this is really odd. Then I go to my first Freedom Caucus meeting and it's like actually stepping into the island of the misfit toys. And then stop on that for a second, because obviously the Freedom Caucus is wreaking havoc a little bit right now. And and it's made up of some diversity of human beings uh, that some of whom I think earnestly believe whatever they believe and some who maybe are posturing. You heard what Romney said about the other senators and what they think about Trump. Behind the scenes, did you get a sense of those people and where they really are? Yeah, I did. And for the, you know, when we went through orientation, you talked about how I felt. The first thing that McCarthy said to us is winners make history. You win no matter what. And really the message was, it doesn't really matter if you're telling the truth. It matters if you win. And I think if there's anything I found out is that integrity and winning an election can be mutually exclusive. So that's a huge thing. For me, though... (laughs) It was the Trump Protection Society. I actually went in and I know people are like, Dan, Jesus. I said, you know, you got to remember here in Virginia, we're the only conference that still meets in a bipartisan way every month. So you have Democrats and Republicans that all meet together. It's the Virginia way is what it's called. And Morgan Griffith was part of the Freedom Caucus and Ben Klein was coming in, who's really not a firebrand at all. I remember talking to Morgan. I'm like, man, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. And Morgan's like, hey. Because you can be yourself. You don't have to vote the line. It is about some ideas because they are further to the right. But look, I've been able to thrive. He was not a complete Trumper. And anybody can say what they want. Morgan wasn't. I'm like, okay, maybe I can ride that lightning. The only person voted into the Freedom Caucus and the Problem Solvers Caucus, you're talking to him, right? So I was in a very bizarre place where I hate overregulation. Like I am, I've run companies and I know the shite that comes down from bureaucratic incompetence and people have no idea what they're doing. But the flip side to me is I was even becoming then more socially liberal. I'll be honest with you. I have really had a migration in my life from when I left the Mormon church, like my last day ever going to, to, to church in the late nineties, early two thousands to now I'm a completely different person in, in that way. It's amazing to me that when I got into the Freedom Caucus, I actually started to even move more into a more socially free camp. Like I said, I didn't want a party that was just small enough to live in the bedroom. The Freedom Caucus, I went in as hoping I could be a debate type of exchange of ideas. The Freedom Caucus is one type of individual, and that's a true believer or it's a performative cynic. There's no in-between, really. There's a couple like a Morgan who's a very good guy, right? There's a couple in there, I think, that ride the lightning a little bit better than the others. But nah, I, I, I was I was a fish out of water. And then, God, it's such an incredible story about how you vote party lines, you do things against your will or what you think is right in order to move on because you don't want the craziers to come in. Then all of a sudden, for me, I had reached a limit where I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And that's really what happened is I just just like I think running from the Mormon church, I bucked the system pretty hard. What were the votes that you took that that ended your congressional career more or less? Well, there's some that ended it and some that were embarrassing. 
So, God, I, you know, like I voted to reopen the government. My first ever vote, I was told I was going to have an opponent. And I was I think it was Mark Meadows on the floor said I just lost my next election. My first vote. Yeah. First vote, buddy. When a rocket busts right on the on the launch pad. Oh, I, yeah, I fragmented a couple of weeks into my, you know, uh, just total fragmentation. Did you know you had or did you not buy it at that time? No, I didn't buy it. I, I'm like, you know, with my incredible good looks and charisma, I should be able to get through this. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. I don't know. But uh, I'm like, you know, I'm a pretty smart guy. I can navigate this. Um, well, then, you know, I took some other votes that were really hurtful. Like I was one of the, I guess, the crazy eight that voted to keep pre-existing conditions. 65% of my uh, district, it was bigger than New Jersey, uh, was rural. But we also had the most federally funded community health centers. So you're talking about a very rural, poor GOP base in the southern part of Virginia, near the North Carolina border. And there was no way I was going to vote against pre-existing conditions with the amount of health care monies that were rolling into my district. That's just ridiculous. And I actually want them to have health care. But I looked at all the policies. I think that vote was really hard. And I also was for H-2A and H-2B immigration unlimited. Based on having a rural district, I really thought we needed to up our legal immigration game. But I'm also a strong border proponent for security based on my background and intelligence. So I was in a really weird place, but I was really able to bounce it because I'm not an idiot. But on the other side of it, I took some votes I was going to vote yes on. I remember John Katko from New York, who's not in Congress anymore. We were about to vote on the Equality Act, and, and I was already getting my heads ripped off. I mean, it was awful in my district. I voted to reopen the government. I was for marriage equality. I mean, I people are like, you're a secret a Democrat, which is the worst thing you can be called as a Republican. In a pejorative, I was called a secret Jew. I was called a general of the sodomite armies. I was called the tool of the Antichrist. Some of those are not that flattering. Not very flattering. <laughs> when I was told that I wanted to change the sexual orientation of children, I knew I was in trouble with the base. I'm like, I can't vote for the Equality Act. I said, I got to go with Chris Stewart's bill, which was really close to the Equality Act, by the way, but it was a Republican bill. Chris Stewart from Utah, a Mormon, ironically. So I'm like, I think I'm going to go with Chris Stewart's bill. And John goes, you know, I don't think Chris's will ever get to the floor. He goes, yeah, he goes, should you vote for the equality bill? I'm like, I, I said, I'm 5149. Yes. I said, but there's some provisions in there I really don't agree with as far as conscious protections for, for parents. Because me too. He goes, but you're 5149 that you should vote. Yes. I'm like, yeah, but it goes to 5149 the other way based on my consultants and based on what's going on with my polling. If I do this. I said, then I got these crazies that are going to run that could beat me. So John just goes, what's the right thing to do? And I said, well, what is the right thing to do? And he goes, that's your decision. Like, do you take a vote knowing it's against what you're doing because of what you've already done or you could lose, which I did. I lost to a QAnon believer. Think about that. I got censured for going against QAnon, by the way. There's some votes that are embarrassing that you take thinking you got to stay in the stream and it could save you. But I was already completely done. When I talk about embarrassing votes, when I talk about votes, I took I took votes that were so heinous against the right. And then to try to overcorrect, I took votes that were embarrassing to say, I can't let these. It was the worst. And it's because you either go in completely independent knowing you're going to lose or you go in completely throttled and completely down the party line. It's really difficult to be both. And I tried to be both. And maybe that was the most humbling lesson I learned is you can't be both. I'll tell people I'm so proud of what I've done. The bills that I got through as a freshman were unheard of. But I'm also in what I tried to do working across the aisle. This, the other side of that was proud 
and shamed at the same time is a really weird emotion. You could have played it differently, knowing what you know now. You could have either voted the way you really believed on everything and got knocked out, right? Or you could have played the game, stayed in, probably secured enough incumbency advantage, perhaps. Is there part of you that's like, I should have done what it took to stay around in Congress? Yeah, uh, I lose sleep over it. Looking at who followed me, I'm like, I would have been better even playing the game than the. the well, yes. I mean, but the said, other side, the other yeah. side of that is, can you sleep at night? Like, I've had people go and look what you did to us. Why could? Why did you have to do the gay wedding in your first term? So I have to have situational morality, and then I'm like, yeah, that's what politicians are. I should have known that. I should have been more. If you're somebody who really hates bullies, hates people telling you what to do. And you want to be in a legislature where you're a backbencher after being a successful CEO, after being successful military intelligence, I was so successful. And then I have some rat bastard telling me, you know, in one of the committees that you need to vote this way based on the fact that the committee chair, you're not going to get your bill through if you don't do this. You're not even going to get introduced. And that's a bill for your district. You, then you have to play the game. And anybody who says that who's been there, they're full of shit. They, they have no idea. If you haven't been in Congress and you're talking about how Congress works, you have no idea about the transactional nature of Congress. You can't even imagine. You don't have the clue. Um, and that's the issue. Do you think if you had played the game, gotten reelected a number of times by compromising maybe some internal values for the longer run. <laughs> yes, a true, true statement. True statement, by the way. Do you think you would have eventually come to believe the things that you were professing externally for the first? I'm trying to understand, like, there's there's clearly people who do go down that road, right? And you tend to rationalize the decisions that you make and maybe even move to them. Do you think that might have happened to you? I don't think so. I, I, I think... Um... I think a lot of these individuals are there because the, even the power, perceived power, is such a it's such a strong. Um, oh, it's an aphrodisiac. <laughs> it's almost. I mean, it's. It's a I mean, high. It's almost, it, it's, it's, it is a high. It's almost sexual nature. I mean, it's like, hey, I get the first reservation at Capitol Grill because I'm a congressman. Wow, you know, there's a lot of layering of jokes here, so I apologize for that. But I don't know if I could have lived with myself. I don't know if I have the Lindsey Graham type of ability to show my belly or the Nancy Mace ability. Um, I mean, you're talking about like maybe some of the biggest political windsocks in the history of America to the bad side of the ledger. So I, I don't think I would have ever done that. But, man, it's so cool to win. It's so cool to be in power. But it's also so awful and so ridiculously soul crushing at the same time. I mean, the way the winds blew in your district to some degree, that's the system functioning. If the primary electorate, I know you're pri you didn't really have a primary, but you know, if the, right? If the primary electorate feels something, and you don't go along, then maybe it's right that someone gets knocked out for not being aligned with their district, right? It, that's how it works, especially yeah. the House, right? It's every two years. Yeah, um, it's a fickle electorate, and you're running for re-election the day you get elected in the House. So that's the first thing you need. The other thing for me, though, is that I actually was winning in the primary polling. And that's why the Republican committees went to a drive through convention at a church five minutes from his house. Remember, only 2,500 people voted 
for the nomination in 2020. I'd have won a, probably a primary just on the fact of the, the bills I was introducing, but also rural broadband funding, healthcare. I was really strong in those areas. If it came to infrastructure and business and healthcare, I would say even immigrant labor here in a rural district with all the farms, I was really strong. I was strong. But when it came to the social issues, whether it was gay marriage, even abortion, as you know, I had to ride the lightning on pro-life, pro-choice pretty hard. Even there, you know, people like he's secretly pro-choice. And maybe, you know, if, if you look at the definition of the GOP, maybe so. Is this the dynamic that supports sort of the allegiance to Trump around the country in the Republican Party? What is the source of that among elected Republican officials? Clearly, he sort of knocked out a couple senators early on that were more moderate, the kind of corker, the flake sort of senators. But I haven't quite grasped what, why people seem to be so afraid of him if they would just act collectively, if they believed in not having him as a leader. How do you understand that relationship between Republican elected officials and, and our former president? I talked about winners make history. It's all about winning. But with that winning, you're looking at a couple of things. You're looking at the polling, the fundraising and the crosstabs. And that's it. I was asked to run as a Republican, as a Democrat in the 5th District here against Bob Good, right? Maybe one of the worst congressional representatives in the United States, a horrible human being. I'll tell him his face. I have, I'd, I'd love to. And he didn't want to meet me on the debate stage. But the issue that you have um, is that polling is so strong. And if you go to an R plus 10 district, Trump's going to win that district. The people that you are attracted to running now are attracted to Trump or they're attracted to the ability to say anything to get elected. That is their superpower is any lack of moral compass or their moral compass is so strong towards the right, towards that specific belief system. Happens on the left, too. You have the people who are sort of moderate. But you could be all the way down the line where you believe in every single tenet of that specific ideology. The issue I have on the far right is they're in a hold my beer moment. What does that mean? It doesn't even matter if the morality is bad for the leaders. It's if that base is actually following along with that kind of messaging. There's no moral reason for any person in the base to support Trump based on if they're religious or evangelical based on his life. There's just nothing. But- what he's saying he's going to protect, to them, that's more important. You have the imperfect vessel that's actually carrying out the perfect ordained mission from God. That's what's happening. So if you're going to run in those districts, your polling is saying that Trump has a 73% approval rating in your district. When you put out your fundraising mailers or digital or emails, you got, you know, we're fighting the evil deep state and Trump is put here by God and that's making you more money. That's how you're going to run. Doesn't matter if you believe it or not. You're trying to win. So it's pulling and fundraising, looking at the cross tabs, and then you just follow that line. You get the fundraising, you get the endorsement, you win. What's the path that took you to the January 6th committee? Woo! A lot of paths. First thing was January 6th happened. I was three days out of Congress. I got a call from Liz Cheney asked me to help with an initial report that we actually released on something called the Network Contagion Research Institute about the white nationalist groups that were involved that day and what happened. We did that in 72 hours. So I delivered that to Liz. And then six, seven months later, I had been following the data with these type of groups pretty hard. As you know, another reason people didn't like me is that I, I just happened to do a QAnon resolution with Tom Malinowski out of New Jersey. Right. And the only Republican to speak out on the floor against QAnon is yours truly, me. 
And then on December 10th, I did a speech warning about violence. And then the night before I did a tweet. So I had, you know, by July, when I got the phone call from the committee to ask to come help, I'm the one who named senior technical advisor. I'm the one who built the technical plan. They just wanted somebody, I think, that was not just a former Republican. I don't think that was it, or a Republican at the time. I think they wanted somebody who actually cared about truth and data, and and they knew that I had a background. You know, Congressman was just my cover, man. I had 20 years of counterterrorism experience, so and tracking bad actors. So I think that's what they. That's how I got into the January 6th committee. I listened to you read your book, The Breach. What's the story of this? Why did you separate from the committee? Why did you write a book? Did it accomplish what you wanted? Was it fun to write it and read it and have it out there? Not an easy decision. First of all, I left the committee. I actually got a phone call from a friend of mine to help with the Ukraine nonprofit. I was actually, I asked for a leave of absence initially. I didn't ask to leave, but they said ethics would not allow me to do both uh, ethics rules, I had, which I thought was a little ludicrous at the time, to be honest with you. I'm like, that's stupid. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So that was April 30th. But, you know, to that time, the writing was on the wall, too. I think I think I was so into the data and I had so much knowledge of it. I mean, 38 million lines of data. I could only get one side of the data anytime I went anywhere. And it was because of political reasons and optics, mostly, it seemed. Worse is they didn't know it. And, and I was trying to tell people, hey, I've done this longer than everybody combined in all of Congress. Every staff, everybody combined in Congress, all 435 in the House, 100 in the Senate, every staff member combined, I've done this longer. Just listen. And it got to that point as a former congressman, somebody who knows what I'm doing, I just could not stand that I could not get them out of a singular narrative, which was a great narrative and it's correct narrative. But there were a lot more people that were involved. And I knew that we had the data or at least we had the lines because it's perishable but we had to act really fast. And there was no speed in that congressional process. And I found out a couple of things. Number one, you could have the best people trying to do the best things, but if they're not properly trained or they don't know what to look for, it's almost impossible to do. Plus you're in a political system that's tribal. I think that the Democrats never 100% trusted me and the Republicans never 100% trusted me. The data says this, whether you like it or not. And I just didn't give a rat's ass. The other thing is, is I thought the data belonged to the people. It did not belong just to the government. And we're in a public trust position. I mean, as a former congressman, I could actually argue that better than just about anybody on that committee. And by the time we had done the text message February, March, they were already removing me from some of the high level meetings. And the writing was on the wall because I don't think they wanted to go in any other direction besides where they needed to be. Reading the final report was great, but we missed so many key points about command and control and how to prevent this in the future. But on the other hand, it's just really difficult to do that in Congress. So I commend the job, but an investigation like that cannot be accomplished in Congress in any real meaningful way at this point. The information battle space is so large that you definitely need to bring back something like the OTA that was taken away in 95 by Gingrich. And I think you've got to bring back a more independent look at technology in order to do investigations like this because they're just incapable at the congressional level right now. They don't have their own technology office anymore. Yeah. No. And, they, and CRS says that they cover it, Congressional Research Service, but they can't cover it. It's impossible. It seems like the, a lot of the core of the book is around Mark Meadows, chief of staff, and his texts and the puzzle of like the incomplete information because you don't have his voice. You don't necessarily have the names of the people he's texting. 
it's sort of a crazy puzzle to work on, I guess, to try to detangle what's going on with the advantage of time. You, you've written the book, you've thought about it, you've seen their report, you've seen how the country has not moved on from this issue. I mean, the, the next presidential election is going to be conducted on the same ground. What do you think about where we are right now and how we got there? I think people need to read my epilogue <laughs> in the breach, right? I think we're worse off than we were before January 6th. My biggest fear was that these sort of half-baked ideas would become baked in. It almost be memed in society that it becomes a superstition, turns into a belief, turns into fact. I think that you have that right now. And I think that's why you see Trump leading in the polls. And a lot of people are like, here's the thing, bud. You know, a lot of people are like, hey, polling this early. Ah, BS, man. Listen, I'm out here. We can we can look at data. We can be anecdotal. But Trump's the presumptive nominee, period. Number one. And anybody who says differently, you need to get your head out of your rear parts. You need to get your head out of your fourth point of contact because you're not really looking at what's going on out here. What I've told people is that my biggest worry when I wrote the book was this Christian nationalism strain or this fantastical belief system where we actually have things happening in policy that are based on, say, stop the steal you know, type of belief systems or where we go one, we go all, the storm, the great reset, the great awakening, all that. But now are we going to be making decisions on we think we have body parts of aliens in Area 51 and freezers? Are we to that point where we believe these type of things are satanic portals, right? I mean, if Matt Gates is front runner for governor of Florida next, right? <laughs> yeah, Gates, Gates will do well. Um, that's the thing. I, I don't know if I can get people to understand that the same, in some respects, are losing. If, if you want truth as part of your life, as a baseline to how you conduct decision-making or arguments, you're in real trouble in some of these areas around the country. And I, I guess my mind is exploding. It's almost as if the media... They can't even get their arms around how dangerous it is. There's a failure, not just of imagination, but there's a failure of courage and a failure of research methodologies. Like, for instance, when you see these interviews of Trump, they just don't have the ability to attack in that way. People like me who know it completely, I mean, I would try to rip them apart, but it doesn't matter because it's already a belief system or a cult. So if you're interviewing Jesus... No matter what you ask him, you're going to be wrong. And I think that's the issue that we have. There's just a lack of the ability to get their arms around the problem because they're, it's either laziness or it's clicks over truth. And I don't know how we get out of that. And I think that's what I'm warning people in the breach is I try to warn people that like this is just starting. Social media and alternative media, the most metastasizing agent of bullshit in the entire time that we've been a country. So we better freaking be prepared. It seems to me like he's got about a 50-50 chance of being the next president. I agree. I just agree. That's a calamity uh, that it's even true. And, and if he wins, for him to have the levers of power again with what he's learned from the first term about bringing in loyalists and doing whatever the fuck he wants. You're not going to have the Hirschmans and Cipollonis in the next administration, I can tell you that. There was a lot of effort made to be the break on him in in the first term. What do you think could be the breaks on him in a second term? There will be none. If he wins again, he's not going to make the same mistakes of bringing in some, what did they say, the, the party of the sane or the, the team team sane to go against team crazy. That's 
it's going to be more loyalists. It's going to be more individuals that are just insane. I mean, can you imagine a cash Patel or something like that being part of a real decision-making authority, say in the DNI or the USDI, any of the intelligence organizations, or bringing in a Rick Rennell, dear God, help us all, or bringing in a Marjorie Taylor Greene into the administration, or a Matt Gates, or a Carrie Lake, um, or, you know, God forbid, a Doug Mastriano. I mean, this is all possible. And I've told people like, listen, if if you want this fantasy based BS, you know, keep thinking that this, uh, you know, that somehow him being in jail or these indictments are going to stop it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But on the other hand, um, God, is there an outside chance? Sure. But you, you know, expect the worst, hope for the best. But hope is not a viable course of action. So we better have a plan. I think that was the warning in the book, but it's also my warning now that what we're saying is almost an exact repeat. There's been no lessening of the crazy thought patterns that are going on with Trump supporters. One of the things that I follow and study in this podcast and outside of it is the progressive ecosystem, which is all of the groups and people and leaders and technology and organizations that are on the other side of that great battlefield divide. You've gotten some acquaintance with that, as well as sort of the never Trump world that's somehow stuck in between. If you were in the position of being the advisor to both of those and saying, this is what you said we need a plan, like, what do you think ought to be done to make sure as much as possible, you know, like you can't control what the economy is going to do or some of the things that just make incumbents lose. But what would you change right now in order to put us on a better course. I'm actually trying to do that through my company is that what does each state look like as far as their voting limitations, democratic institutions? Why aren't we doing a state by state massive study on what's happening within that state as far as voting regulations or the freedom to actually get to the polls? There are people working on that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, it needs to be very aggressive. But when you're talking about, you know, in this political world, God, if I was to give advice, yeah. I'd say, why do you guys think anybody else is playing by the rules while you're trying to? What what gives you any idea that truth or some kind of facts-based argument is effective in any way in this political environment? Are you saying you have to fight fire with fire and lie just as much? Nope. I'm saying that you need to use technology in a way where you make facts as sexy as fantasy, where you try to blow holes in it by an overwhelming barrage of offense on the truth and facts-based way. The best way I can say it is that you use you need to use uh, technology to ethically destruct the fantasy-based ecosystems that are out there. Sane has to meet the same energy as crazy. And you can't just let that shit ride. That's what I'm trying to do right now is I'm like, how do you actually build an ecosystem where you can tear apart those disinformation structures from foreign elements and domestic elements. That's what we need to do. We need to have a facts-based tsunami of people that are actually committed with the same amount of energy to use technology, to use the same kind of algorithmic warfare principles that those other people are using to rip these people apart by playing offense and not defense. Can you make that more concrete? Like, Give me a specific example of something that is out there that ought to be destroyed in the way that you're suggesting. Right. So, for instance, you look at the Council for National Policy that Jenny Thomas was a part of. My favorite. Oh, and mine too. But when you look at the CNP, 
I think you need to look at each of those individuals and you need to look at all of their follow the money patterns. And I think you need to go after every single person. You need to look at every single person and ethically how they're doing things and other groups that they belong to. And you need to, to drag that stuff into the sunlight. So when I talk about ethical destruction, I'm talking about looking at people that are doing things in the darkness. You have to bring them into the light. But it's not going to help by just going after an entire organization. You got to pick people and you got to rock them. And I tell you, far right consultants, targeted types of uh, political plays, they're ripping apart the people or they're, they're creating conspiracy theories around George Soros or the Rothschilds or the deep state globalists, false flags, government cover ups, FBI insertions into January 6th or CIA or Antifa or Antifa being funded by, you know, all the BS that you have out there. You need to go after those people and need to expose them for who they are. You need to do that, right? Those groups and those people, you need to expose them, drag them into the sunlight. And you got to get me to actually report on it because sometimes facts and data are boring. It's not some fantastical belief system. Aliens are not visiting your house. So I think that you need to have people to go after these specific groups. There's some groups on the left that are out there, but I think the right I think if truth and facts aren't part of anything that they're doing, you need to go after the people that are spreading it and you need to rip them apart ethically, but with facts, but you need to rip them apart. You referenced your company that's doing stuff. What is this company and what do you do? Well, once I wrote the book, I thought that was it for me. I was going to just be making whiskey and I was fortunate. It was a bestseller and things like that. But I'm like, yeah, the left and the right pretty much hate me now. So, you know, I might as well just, but what I found was it was almost the opposite. So many people are like, Jesus, that's awesome, man. I can't believe you did this. You, you knew everybody would be pissed. I said, yeah, but I didn't really, what are they going to do? Right. So I had no political career to speak of. I was like, how about your political career? What are you talking about, man? I, I got 50 acres in the woods. I make whiskey. Why do I give a shit? Right. But part of me still wants to serve and I could run again. I've been asked to run by so many groups, Republicans and Democrats, which has been really bizarre. God, what, did, what was the question? I just forgot. I just absolutely lost it. It happens. It was about your company and what does it do? Oh, my company. Yeah. So, yeah. so rig. So I started this company because I started getting um, phone calls after the book was written from pretty, you know, it's public that I I'm doing all the forensics on the Hunter Biden data. Um, I just got called from multiple billion dollar states uh, around the country to, to do things, to help them with people that are attacking them or targeting them. Other people who've had bad things said about them or done about them, like Denver, how do we get in front of this? So I'm like, can we use all this data we have out there instead of, you know, converting it all to artificial intelligence? Can we use AI enhanced product development or product solution delivery based on a specific data set? So I've done this for 20 years. So what I did is I went and I hired AI ontologists, UI or visualization experts, but I also hired people to help me break down the requirements for building automatic relation maps and narratives in a way that I don't think a lot of people are doing. So I tried to do this. I tried to put that in a wrapper. So now I got investment, I have contracts and I have a team of about nine people where we're trying to parse all this data with different types of rule sets to see how we can do to identify gaps, but identify bad actors and to identify patterns. So I'm pretty excited about this. And so that's what I'm doing right now. And it's just a really neat thing. What's the name of the company? It's uh, right now it's RIG. It's Riggleman Information Intelligence Group. And then uh, I started another one called Riggleman Analytics. This company is really, it's exciting to me because I've, I've done this before multiple times as started starting companies. But 
I, I've, I've created so much technology in the government space. I've never really done it in the commercial space. So it's a first for me. So again, humbling, but I'm pretty excited about it. Who are the clients or who are the ideal clients for it? Ideal clients for me on the commercial side would be, you know, any individual organization, things like that, that have problems with disinformation being spread about them. And these could be huge. I mean, the organizations are huge that, you know, the Hunter Biden legal team is no joke, right? They reached out to me just to do forensics and data, say, here's the patterns, here's the gaps, here's what happened. Then I turn that over. I don't make any judgments criminally or things like that. I actually just do the data. Here's the facts based things that we've seen. That's what I do. So people are like, damn. So they start calling, like, can you do this for us? Like computer forensics, telephony forensics, social media analysis, looking at different types of data streams, real-time data, things like that. So I'm like, okay, I can do that. Other possible customers, the Global Engagement Center, Department of Homeland Security, um, federal, state, and local law enforcement. But also I would say um, on the other side, on the real intelligence community side, I would say NSA, maybe other government agencies that have other three-letter monikers. So what about political campaigns? Uh, what about Biden for president? What about a Senate campaign that's that's gotten mired up in some bullshit thing? I can tell the data for, for how it's happening to them. I didn't want to get into where we're an oppo research firm, but we're really, really good at, at, at this. So if we're trying to identify bad actors, things like that, we're really good at it. We have had political campaigns reach out like Denver, what can you tell me about these individuals? I'm a bit reluctant to be where we're defined in any way as oppo research. Um, but if somebody doing is, is actually a bad actor or going after their family, or they have people that are trolling them in a way that they're calling them pedophiles and things like that, I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, Green, you call me, we'll go after them. I want to stay on the side of the angels. And that's what I'm trying to do is, can there be a good guy team that uses AI in an offensive manner by leveraging other data that's out there, not going all the way to, to, to those data sets, but can we leverage AI and do AI for good or tech for good rather than tech as a mercenary type of element, which I think a lot of people are doing. You also have a new podcast. I do. Yeah, I did it myself. I left a, you know, it's starting to get some Midas Touch just signed me to, which I thought was cool or asked me to come on and help them. And, but my podcast is called The Mighty Peculiar. And what we're doing is we're actually linking past myths, conspiracies, cults, and bizarre behavior to today's behavior. It's been amazing to do that on my own. I pay the guys myself. So it's very independent, but it's growing pretty quickly. I'm a little bit surprised. I'm not even being humble. I was like stunned by it. I'm like, oh, people care. But it's not that big. I think we're, we're like all excited because we're getting close to 2,000 downloads a week. I'm like, whoa, man. So, but we'll see, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Things have to build up. They have to. Yeah, they sure do. What should I have asked you that I didn't? Oh, that's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing people have been asking me, and I know we sort of touched on it, is if I'm going to run again. Yeah. And the rumors governor uh, as an independent, right? Yeah, it was weird. Somebody asked me, like, would you would you run again? I'm like, I'm not going to run. Would you 100% not run again? I said, I'm not going to rule it out. I mean, I'd rather set myself on fire, but you never know if I get angry again or enraged, I might run again, you know. And that that spread like wildfire throughout the Virginia political ecosystem. And I've had Democrats and Republicans ask me to run, but I would never run for a legislative position again. So you, you might run for an executive position. It'd be executive. There's no power in the legislative branch. It's a mire. <sighs> Somebody asked me, what would be the circumstances for you to run? So I gave them a, a fantasy proposition after we're talking about facts, but I'll give you a fantasy proposition. 
but have to be in a position and a place and a time where I can run as myself. It's going to be very hard for me to ever pander again. And I'm like, how far would I be willing to compromise my messaging to get elected? What is my line? Because every single person who runs for political office, you made an incredible point earlier, by the way, when you said that you have to represent your constituency. And if your constituency is nuts or they're center or they're left or they're right, and you're not in that vein, it could be that the political leaders take you out. But it's usually not the people. It's very interesting. I think we have a two-party system that doesn't advance or doesn't survive the social media era at all. My fantasy running on a facts-based platform would be to keep my integrity through every second of it. I don't know if it's possible in politics, but it would have to be where I could be as close to 100% who I need to be in order to run for that position. And I don't know when that would be. Yeah, that window doesn't happen to open too often. There's something I think about when you've had a career that at times has had a lot, given you a lot of attention and a lot of plaudits and success, that there's an addiction, I think, to that. And it's a rare person that can run away from that and not seek it again. What's your relationship with attention? <laughs> There's such a beautiful thing about anonymity, by the way. <laughs> I, you know, I was pretty comfortable with it till 47 years old. To tell you how much I didn't care is, is hard to like. But, you know, when I got into it, it's not the attention for me. It's I despise bad actors. I have this distaste you know, for people who think they can control others. And I don't know if it's because of the way I was raised, but whether it's I despise cult leaders, bullies, conspiracy theorists. I mean, if you're a 9-11 truther, do not come up into my place. I just can't stand them. And when I see conspiracy theorists running for office or people like we have in my district here, is it my duty? If somebody's taken the oath multiple times. Is it my duty to stop them? And I despise running for office, man. I hate it. I hate it every day of it. I despise it. I don't care about the attention going to committee meetings. Uh, you got to be kidding me. Having to go do a talk, you know, about what do we do about all these books? I, I just can't do it. I, I won't do it. Uh, but on the other hand, like if I don't do it, I hate it so much. If the people who hate this don't run, what are we? It's the people who want to do this. They're awful. If you want to be a politician your whole life, I do not want you hanging out and having a bourbon with me. I just don't. But if you're a person who's like, man, I'm going to swing the bat. I'm enraged. I'm running because I feel like it's the right thing to do. The issue is when you get in, it gets addictive to stay in. I don't know how you keep that. I feel like, am I a coward if I don't run? And I think that's the thing that I fight with every day. Yeah. I mean, you talked about bad actors. We've always had bad actors, but we seem like we're in a time where the number of them is burgeoning and the shamelessness, particularly on the right, particularly in this, I don't know, Christian authoritarian strain that's on the rise. It's on the rise. It's formidable. And, you know, we've seen many countries get subsumed by this kind of tide. What do you see is hopeful? <laughs> what a question. Damn. What do I see that's hopeful? Or what's your balance between hope and pessimism? Oh, I mean, I I live in a world of where, <laughs> oh God, I just don't want to be a downer, man. 
There is some hope. I mean, I think you have some groups out there that are really trying to make a difference. But what I'm seeing is they come in to make a difference about a specific set, then they become very political. I think my hope is, is that there's going to be just enough Americans, three to 5% in the middle that we can persuade where you don't have certain individuals elected like Trump. I think Trump is a real danger to this country. My pessimism comes from the fact that what you just said is there is this burgeoning growth of right in your face, bad actors, but the issue that we have is they don't think they're bad actors in some respects. No one thinks they're a bad actor. No. And then I'm like, who am I to define that? Yeah. I'm Denver Riggleman. I can define it because I know what truth is. I know what data is. I know what facts are. I don't know if it was ever here in America, but how do we bring more facts-based data-based arguments into the, the public arena? I think it's really through technology and it's through people that have absolutely no problem leaning forward and doing things that are hard. And I think that's where I'm at right now is I'm okay doing the hard things, man, and trying to build this type of technological outreach or technological weapon system to go after disinformation and what I define as bad actors. But I'm defining those bad actors as people that are pushing fantasy and things that are unknowable, things that are just so bizarrely out of touch with a fact-based human being. I think stupidity is a greater threat than people who think they're bad actors. I think we're at a war against ignorance and stupidity more than we are against people who are purposely bad. If you wander around in rural America, you talk to lovely people who are voting for him. Great people people that would save your dog from a train or whatever, whatever it is. Stop on the side of the road to help you change a tire and take you home to stir apple butter, which happened to me. Until they find out that you're a child molester, right? Until they find out (laughs) I've been funded by George Soros. So no, it's a great point. And I think that's the issue is that they are such lovely people and gosh, darn it, man, I get so angry. But as soon as they find out that I went against Trump, those lovely people become pretty freaking angry and they hate your guts. And I think that's, what's interesting about it. Yeah. Now I read about your struggles with even your mother and feeling like you'd left her politically. Uh, Much more than that. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, I, I went against the ordained path of goodness I'm an apostate. And I think, but we need more apostates, brother. We, we need, need apostates to win. We do. It's, it's great to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, nope, I'm good. That was Denver Riggleman. He's Rep Riggleman on X. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.